You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Financial Market Greed Many global financial crisis analysts would stop there, satisfied that the combination of executive greed and banking greed provides sufficient explanation for the global responsibility crisis. And they certainly do represent the most obvious failures that caused the mother of all meltdowns. However, I do not believe that these two factors alone tell the whole story. To understand banking greed, we need to look at the nature of the financial markets as a whole, how they are designed, how they operate, and the behaviours they incentivize. In order to understand what greed is good really means, in terms of hard numbers, we must wrap our heads around the concept of financial derivatives. MacDonald referred to derivatives as the Wall Street neutron, but what are they? Put simply, they are speculative bets on changes in various market indicators, like currencies and interest rates, with the supposed effect of reducing overall risk. By the turn of the century, some three decades after their introduction, these esoteric financial instruments were growing at around 25% per year. Today, according to the Bank for International Settlements, the derivatives market is worth over 1,000 trillion, that's a quadrillion with 15 zeros, dollars. Why this is so significant is that most of this trade is not happening in the real economy, but rather in a parallel casino economy. Take trade in currencies, for example. In 1998, when new economists like Hazel Henderson were starting to take note of these trends, around 1.5 trillion, that's 12 zeros, in currency was traded daily on the global markets, up 45% from 1994. But only 2.5% was linked to real economy transactions such as trade, tourism, loans or genuine investments on stock markets. The other 97.5%, up from 20% in the 1970s, was pure speculation, a gambling economy in which financial traders were making eye-popping sums of money without actually contributing anything tangible to the products and services that give us quality of life. This unflattering characterization of financial markets is not one that is only applied by outside critics of Wall Street. Referring to one of the more modern varieties of derivatives, the credit default swap, MacDonald recalled that, and I quote, In the merry month of May 2006, Wall Street took hold of this gambling concept and decided to transform itself into something between a Las Vegas casino and an off-track betting parlor. Early in 2006, there were $26 trillion of credit default swaps. By the beginning of 2008, it was $70 trillion, with just 17 banks carrying that risk. And that was besides the $15 to $18 trillion in other derivatives and fancy instruments. An alphabet soup of CDOs, RMBSs, CMBSs, CLOs and ABSs. This was all well and good when it was just a high-stakes game for rich kids to play. 
But as we have seen with the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act and the introduction of the Financial Services Modernization Act in 1999, the greed-infused, short-term-obsessed gambling habits of Wall Street traders can have, and have had, very real and devastating effects on the very real economies and very real people of the world. Even today, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, very few of these financial market agents have taken responsibility or been made account. Speculators may do no harm as bubbles on a steady stream of enterprise, but the position is serious when enterprise becomes the bubble on a whirlpool of speculation. When the capital development of a country becomes a byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. Well, ill done it has been, woefully ill done. No wonder billionaire investor Warren Buffett first described derivatives as weeds priced as flowers and later as financial weapons of mass destruction. If Keynes were here today, standing with us on financial ground zero and gazing at the post-apocalyptic debris of our once gleaming citadels of commerce, he might quite justifiably shake his head and mutter, I told you so. Corporate greed. Even financial market greed may not be the ultimate cause of our woes. I'm not quite so uncharitable as Howard Scott, who says the definition of a criminal is a person with predatory instincts who has not sufficient capital to form a corporation. But could it be that unbridled greed is, by design, the unavoidable outcome of corporate institutions? We often forget that when corporations were originally introduced in America in the mid-1800s, it was with the explicit purpose of serving the public good. This was enshrined in a charter with liable shareholders. Only later did the nature of the corporation change when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the corporation should have the same rights as individuals, thus making it a legal person. The problem today, according to critics, is that the corporation is a person with no moral conscience and an exclusive focus on the benefits of shareholders. This results in a pattern of social costs imposed by business in exchange for private gains for its executives and owners. In his controversial yet highly influential book and documentary, The Corporation, Canadian legal academic Joel Bacon suggests that corporations are, by their legal constitution, pathological in nature. He says, The corporation has a legally defined mandate to relentlessly pursue, without exception, its own self-interest, regardless of the often harmful consequences it might cause to others. Lying, stealing, and killing are not rare aberrations, but the duty of the corporation when it serves the interests of its shareholders to do so. This, according to Bacon, means that corporations have all the characteristics of a psychopath, as defined by the World Health Organization. Well, not everyone, even among those concerned about business responsibility, would go quite this far in their diagnosis. But there is certainly little doubt that the inbuilt greed of the modern corporation does exist. David Corton, author of When Corporations Rule the World, is among the many critics that remind us of the dangerous power of business. 
a world in which more than half of the top 100 economies are in fact multinational corporations. With such awesome power comes huge responsibility. Yet left to their own devices, says Corton, many corporations are cost externalization machines. They will naturally and obsessively try to avoid paying for any negative human, community or environmental costs that they impose on society. Corton believes the problem is even more fundamental than the corporations themselves. Talking to me in 2008, he reflected as follows. If I were to write the book now, I would probably put the title When Corporations Rule the World with a slash through corporations and a little carrot pointing to money. It's actually when money rules the world. This has become so much more obvious, so much stronger and so much more disruptive as we've seen the rampant speculation in the financial markets. That very structure drives a predatory dynamic in the corporate system that you really can't do very much about at the level of the individual corporation. You can do a little tinkering around the edges, but those are pretty limited relative to the depth of changes that we need to navigate. A personal odyssey into greed. Having shared these different perspectives on the greed-related causes of the financial crisis, I should admit that my views on business and greed are strongly shaped by my own particular intellectual journey over the past 20 years. Like MacDonald, I grew up in the greed is good 80s. That was even what we called it when I was studying for my honours degree in business science. Admittedly, at the time, I didn't really understand what it meant, or at least not in technical financial terms. I knew that junk bonds, derivatives and mergers and acquisitions were all the rage, and of course I had seen Oliver Stone's iconic masterpiece, Wall Street. I had even heard of the Black Monday, the infamous stock market crash of 19 October 1987, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 22% in a single day. But I didn't really know the scale of greed that was in full swing by the time I graduated in 1991. I suppose I felt it more indirectly as the inevitable backdrop to my personal mission at the time, which was to bring about a new paradigm in business, one which questioned three fundamental beliefs, that profit is the primary purpose of companies, that competition is the most effective mode of operation, and that management is a rational undertaking. It didn't take long, 18 months to be exact, for that personal mission to become deeply frustrated as I entered the chew-em-up-and-spit-em-out-burnout track of the international management consulting world, working for Capgemini as a strategy analyst. To be fair, it was a remarkably steep learning curve, and Gemini had some incredibly progressive ideas about business transformation. But in the end, we were in the business of making money for ourselves and our clients, and therein lay the rub. I just couldn't shake the nagging belief that life and work are not just about the money. Sure, we were transforming companies or re-engineering them to use the parlance of the day. But to what end? Yes, they came out the other side lean and mean, but at what cost? The truth was that I just couldn't get excited about the money. So what if I helped make a company more profitable? Or more to the point, helped to make their directors and shareholders richer? 
What about all the so-called collateral damage, the unfortunate people who were often let go thanks to our quest for efficiency and shareholder returns? And who were these shareholders anyway? As far as I could tell, many were what are increasingly known as share flippers, traders who are in it for a quick buck, who buy and sell shares without the least concern for the long-term prospects of the company, let alone its people or its environmental impacts. Discovering Institutionalized Greed In 1995, I quit the rat race to do a master's in human ecology at Edinburgh University in Scotland. That proved to be a pivotal decision because it led me deeper into understanding the nature and extent of greed in business. The course director, Alistair McIntosh, was and is a fiery, red-bearded Scot with an MBA in finance who taught us to question the colossus edifices of power, especially multinational companies. McIntosh was just the catalyst I needed to question business as usual, drawing as he did from his own experience as an activist. For instance, he was a key figure in the campaign to oust the English landlord of the island of Egg and to indefinitely stall Lafarge's plans to build a super quarry on the island. Both inspiring stories are written up in McIntosh's book called Soil and Soul. Partly as a result of McIntosh's influence, when I had to choose a topic for an essay assignment on human ecology, I decided to look at the practice of usury, the charging of interest on loans. This practice has been condemned by philosophical and religious traditions for more than 4,000 years. My research on usury confirmed that issues of ethics and business go way back in history, and likewise that greed is as ancient as the hominid caves of Starkfontein in South Africa. But it also unveiled a surprising symptom of the greed sickness, namely the bizarre way that the modern banking system is constructed, in particular the method of fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking allows private banks to create loans equivalent to about seven times the amount of actual money or assets like gold that they hold in reserve. It seemed crazy to me then and still does now that private profit-making organizations and banks are or were clearly among the most private and the most profitable, are able to create money out of thin air and then just make more money by charging interest on these loans that they conjured into existence from the financial ether. By contrast, I was mightily intrigued by radical alternatives, such as the creation of local currencies, especially the LETS, or local exchange trading system, which has now been taken up by the emerging transition towns movement as well as Islamic equity-based banking. These have inbuilt checks and balances against greed. Let's was first established by Michael Linton in 1983, when his rural community in British Columbia in Canada was devastated by an economic recession. The system allows members to trade both goods and services using a combination of conventional dollars and community-created credits called green dollars. While members' balances are stored in a central computer program, there is no interest and no speculation in the left system. Islamic banking is quite different, but tackles greed in its own way. It is centered around financial equity-based approaches. 
most notably a joint venture between the bank and a partner, with both contributing to the capital of the project and sharing the profit or loss, or the practice in which the capital for an investment is provided by the bank in return for a predetermined share of the profit or loss of the business undertaking. The claimed advantages of Islamic banking as an approach to finance are that it results in more just and equitable distribution of resources, as well as less volatile business cycles and more responsible and profitable lending due to closer bank-client relationships. Remember, the banker shares losses as well as profits. With my interest peaked, I chose my dissertation topic as a human and ecological critique of the UK financial system. This was when I finally got to grips with what greed is good really meant in terms of hard numbers. In particular, I discovered the explosive financial derivatives trend that I have already discussed.